Well, it's uh, always a privilege to be able to share and, and uh, from God's word and, and the, the Beck. Um, but I, I'm going to kind of, I know, take a bit of advantage of this, to be honest. It's, I always think it's, it's kind of, uh, it is it's to ask forgiveness sometimes, and it is uh, permission. Um, as you recall, a, a few uh, Sundays ago, uh, we had an appeal to uh, build a, a, a pastor's house in the country I, I, I serve in. Um, and we were looking to raise in between 250 uh, to 2,500 and 3,000 pounds. Quite a lot, but I mean, it, it, it's no surprise that we actually shot right past that. And we ended up kind of raising in the region of 4,860 pounds. Yeah, that, that's quite phenomenal. And I'm kind of thinking, well, what, what, what do we do with this you know, ex additional funds that we actually had? I mean, there's lots of ideas, lots of opportunities to be able to use those funds for. But there are some things that we, we can't really anticipate. And one of the things that we can't anticipate, although in present climate, I guess we can a little bit, price the materials shoot up, and, 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 and they have over there as, as well as they have here. Uh, and one of, the, one of the kind of other donors to this, 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 uh, the building of this pastor's house was going to come from the, the, the national church. Um, but the week prior to me uh, arriving in West Africa, a few, few weeks back, there was an attack uh, by jihadists in one of uh, the villages uh, on a Sunday. And uh, typical gunman goes into a church and just mows people down. Um, I mean, the, the actual reports are that maybe hundreds of people were actually killed uh, in that area. A lot of people having to flee. Um, and so the church had to redirect funding. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's devastating. It, it's just the weird two worlds that I spend a lot of my time in, and sometimes it's actually kind of quite hard to reconcile all this stuff. But, yeah, the amazing thing is with, with God's providence, it left a kind of shortfall of around about uh, 2,300 pounds. And do the maths, and it, it kind of came to the amount pretty much of what we raised. God's providence, he sees what we don't see even the most devastating situations. So really, thank you for your generosity and your prayers. But praise God that nothing is out of control. He's faithful. We don't understand a lot of these things that happen, as painful as they may be. But we can trust him. We can trust him. Now, the, the working title of, of, of today's message that I was giving was the cost of, of, of discipleship. And ordinarily, when I'm speaking on a subject, I like to kind of use some form of illustration to get us thinking in a certain direction. But I think that has kind of served that purpose, uh, to be honest. So we're going to kind of be reading in a moment in, in, uh, in, in, in Mark's Gospel, looking at uh, chapter... 13 verses 1, 1 to, to 13. And, 
age, I have to wear glasses these days. I'd rather not, because you all go blurry, but uh, hey. So it, it, it's, it's one of those sections of, of that is found in each of the synoptic gospels that is often uh, described as uh, the little apocalypse. So why is it described as the little apocalypse? Well, because what we find in these few verses, and it goes right through chapter 13, is very much mirrored in the book of Revelation, or as it's called in the French, l'apocalypse from the Greek word apocalypsis, translated into English, revelation. But today we're just going to uh, read from verses 1 uh, to 13 and have a brief look at what it says and then we're going to see what it says to us today. We, we, we do have to look at, at some of the kind of context. It's important to get a full grasp of it. So let's... Let's turn and, and uh, read from, from Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, starting at verse 1. As he was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings... And Jesus replied, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they will all be about to all about to be fulfilled. And Jesus said to them, Watch how that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines, and these are the beginning of the birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say what is given you at the time. For this is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And all men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. 
Let me just pray again as we think about these few verses. Heavenly Father, we, we live in a broken world and we live with many uncertainties. But Father, we thank you that your word is a sure foundation for our lives. And uh, I pray as we just uh, think about these few verses now that you would speak to us. Father, you would, as we say, we comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And at certain times throughout life and our experiences, we fit into both those camps. So, Father, we pray that you would speak and that we would hear. Amen. Buildings are impressive. They have the power to communicate and influence. And, and throughout history, architecture has been used to symbolize and say something about a country, a city, about its people, about its belief systems. The design of the structure says something and leaves an impression. They are the statements on the skyline imposing by their very presence and authoritative without speaking a word. And this is where we find Jesus and his disciples as they exit the temple courts, impressed by the structural statement that had be, become the focal point of, of, of the Jewish faith. And here we find the disciples astonished at the magnificence of, of the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah, the rabbis uh, of Jesus' day had, had a saying. He who has not seen Jerusalem in her splendor has never seen a desirable city. He who has not seen the temple in its completeness has never seen a glorious building in his life. Now, I, I know living in rugby, it's hard to actually think of maybe a particular building, and I'm not quite sure the actual clock tower is actually really kind of uh, fits the, the bill. But, but here, the site was breathtaking. And then Jesus drops the bombshell. He says, you see all these great buildings, these statements of stone. He says, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And like a wrecking ball in a greenhouse, Jesus smashes to smithereens their vision of the future has, as to how they understood being a follower of the Messiah would be. You know, so often we can have fixed ideas, can't we, of what life should be. 
You know, we can have fixed ideas of, of, of what it means to follow Jesus and what the shape of our lives would be. I was convinced when I first became a Christian, as I looked at those Christians I knew, that you become a Christian and then life is all hunky-dory. It's great. And the wrecking ball came and smashed that to smithereens in my life. And every now and then God permits something to come into our lives and shake the very foundations of who we are. And more often than not, it's not a comfortable experience. It wasn't for these four disciples that came to Jesus. And, and their kind of question reveals to us something of, of the Jewish understanding of what the, the, the temple, uh, dis, the temple's destruction kind of implied. Yet theologically speaking, Jesus' words held powerful eschatological significance. In other words, it was speaking to the end of times. And what the prophet Joel described as that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Judgment day. And so the disciples are looking for a sign as to when this would take place. One assumes because they'd like a, a bit of a heads up, but instead... Jesus answers their question for a heads up and he responds with a warning against being deceived. We see this in, in, in verse 5. And verse 5 lists unsettling events that have ricocheted throughout history ever since. And so what do we learn from this? Well, it's during times of uncertainty, during times of trial, when our worlds are rocked, that we become more susceptible and more vulnerable to deceptions. It's those dark and difficult times where we become most at risk of being carried away by fanciful, fanciful teaching, half-truths, promising the world, but actually delivering very little. And as Jesus lists both these natural disasters and global conflicts, he's, he describes them as the beginning of, 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 of birth pains. The beginning of birth pain. So what, what's, what's Jesus actually saying here? Well, he's telling us by using this analogy, well, firstly, and probably the most important, is that with any childbirth, irrespective of as to where things are at as the labour progresses, you know, at some point... This pain is going to be eclipsed by tremendous joy when this new life finally arrives. Yeah, the second thing we notice, however, from these labor pains, they are just at the beginning. The implication is that there's that there, there's 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 more to come. And Jesus' followers need to be able to endure what is ahead. You know, as Jesus 
said in Matthew's Gospel, a student is not above the teacher, nor a servant his master. We see in Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set out before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and we are to fix our eyes on Christ and his example. It's about carrying your cross. Now, not only is this section described as the, the, the little apocalypse due to its, uh, it, it, its content, its end times content, but it, it's also due to its unique literary style, designed not as a kind of chronological blueprint for events that the actual disciples were looking for, but to create powerful impressions and images that, that stay with us. And one of the impressions Jesus wants to leave with his disciples then and now is that following him is going to cost something. It's going to be costly. Verse 9. Jesus said, you must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues on account of me, as you take up your cross. And again, remember, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And when thinking about uh, the subject uh, of, of suffering, Scripture talks about two kinds of suffering. One we can describe as, as, as just the ordinary suffering of, the, of living in, in a fallen and, and broken world. And, and nobody is exempt. Whether you're a Christian or whether you've not come to faith in Christ, the, the same applies. At, at some point, the fallen world that we live in, if it hasn't already done so, will actually fall on us. And we see Jesus' ministry ministering to broken people, bringing healing, putting lives back together. Yet we continue to live in that state of brokenness. And here in verse, verses 7 to 8, he talks of conflict, natural disasters that impact all, irrespective of who they are, where they live, or, or what they believe. But the second kind of suffering we see from verse 9 onwards, here Jesus begins to talk of suffering as a direct consequence of obediently following him. And when we actually track a lot of the New Testament letters, this is the backdrop when, people, when, 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 when the writers talk of suffering as a direct consequence and experiencing the pressures of following Christ. And it doesn't take long when we look at church history how this is actually the case. You know, it starts in the book of Acts as we read through there. We see different examples 
of how the church finds itself under enormous pressure, floggings, thrown into prison, executions. I'm assuming that a number of us here will have a, a, a bit of understanding of, of, of church history. Some will be familiar, some will be won't, some won't be familiar. But one of the things that Jesus was actually talking about was an event that took place in, in, in AD 70. In the destruction of the temple in, in Jerusalem as the full weight of the Roman army absolutely decimated a Jewish uprising that started in 66 AD. Absolutely destroyed Jerusalem. Decimated the temple, not one stone laid on top of another. Jesus' prophecy foretold, completed, at least in part. The interesting thing is about this, though, is that the actual early church never took part in the uprising. They fled following Jesus' instructions. If we bounce forward to verse 14, that's preserving the early church from complete annihilation, but the Christians not taking part in the rebellion was actually considered a treachery. We have to remember that the early church was born within the Jewish faith and was often seen as a kind of offshoot from the Jewish faith. But here all ties were cut, alienating themselves from their fellow countrymen, being seen as traitors. And within the Roman government system, they moved outside of what was accepted as an official Roman religion or sanctioned Roman religion, which Judaism was. And the term springs to mind, they became absolutely fair game from their fellow countrymen to the Roman Empire. So persecuted continue for the next 200 years until Emperor Constantine himself became a Christian. But these words uh, of Jesus ring true. And so the persecuted they were, and Jesus' call to stand firm becomes all the more poignant, doesn't it? You know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, you know, it would be hard to imagine what living in a culture where being a follower of Jesus would incur any real level of risk. Of course, when we think about organizations like, uh, or countries like North Korea, or, or we think of the church in, in communist China, we, we hear the growth of the, the underground church. Uh, and today there's far more per Christians that die for their faith and ever did back in the early church. Often, well, often 
uh, the things that are placed on, on our, that place these things on our radar are organisations like, like Barnabas Fund. I think we had the Barnabas Fund come to speak at us at Beck a few uh, months ago, like, like when, when thinking about the persecuted church. We have organisations like Open Doors that make sure this information, the persecuted church, is kept on our radar. And yet it's easy to get throughout the whole of history external pressures and persecution was, was part and package of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Following him. Carrying out his mandate to which Christ has called us at the gospel. That the good news would be proclaimed, talked about, gossiped. Here it says to the nations, but to our neighbours, our, our, our colleagues, those we bump into when we're walking our dogs or, or at the school gates with our children. But also mentioned here, across the cultures and religious divides, in a pluralistic society, it seems quite intolerant to actually say that Jesus Christ is the only way. And it's not popular. Increasingly, it's becoming a bit of a taboo. You know, it's nice to be popular, isn't it? You know, it, it, I actually quite liked being liked. And I think, I think most of us do. But the world has changed dramatically for many of us. You know, when I first became a Christian at 21, um, it completely transformed my life. And, 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 I, and I, I did receive ridicule. Uh, you know, my work colleagues took the mick. They saw kind of try a transformation in my life. And attending church was something to be, be ridiculed. But by and large... My Christian faith was never deemed as intolerant or harmful as it can be presented from certain quarters today. You often think of uh, when Paul, not the Apostle Paul, our Paul, (laughs) talks that often he speaks from behind this, this pulpit and says, as Christians, we are increasingly finding ourselves on the wrong side of the, 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 moral, the moral and, and ethical debate. You're no longer seen as the upholders of moral values, but as corrosive to the so-called well-being of our diverse society. You know, in some respects... The church has to hold its hands up and admit that on some levels we've done a dreadful job of actually responding well to the broken society that we actually live in. But our story isn't just defined by our shortcomings. but Our story is defined by the word of God. And by who we are in Christ. And as we come back to the passage, we see from verses 
9 to 13, three different kinds of opposition. That should not come as a shock to us. You know, whether you're living here in Bilton or whether you're living in a different part of the world where the pressure is intense. You know, we've already looked briefly at the first kind of opposition from pressures from those within power, within the kind of Roman culture, within, within governments. The second is a reflection as to what Jesus has already spoken about. The gospel not necessarily bringing peace, but a sword. You know, I know for some of us, we may have experienced at first hand what it is that creates family conflict when we come to Christ. When we make decisions to prioritise God's purposes over our own. Our close friendships, close, close relationships. Yeah, we see this certainly where we've worked with Muslims over the years. When a Muslim comes to Christ, he's ostracised from his family, often losing all the advantages of being in the wider family and finds himself or herself very much on their own. But in verse 13, we come to possibly the most challenging of all of the oppositions when Jesus says, all men will hate you because of me. Again, it stands as a bit of a wrecking ball, doesn't it? First, Jesus is not in, firstly, the thing to understand is Jesus is not encouraging his disciples to make themselves unpopular. You know, we're not called to be obnoxious. Uh, and I try my best not to be, but neither does this imply that when we start to follow Jesus, everyone will automatically hate us. This is not what the passage is saying. It's in the same way that when Jesus says in Luke in Luke 14, 26, says, if anyone comes after me he just, he, and does not hate his father or mother or wife, is not worthy to be my disciple. Jesus in, in Luke was using hyperbole, an exaggeration, an exa- exaggerated form of speech to demonstrate a new and radical allegiance to put Jesus first above all other. And here, similarly, Jesus is employing the same method to simply say, you know, when you become my disciple, to follow my ways and my purposes, it will often feel like you are swimming in the opposite direction to everybody else. Going against the flow. And as we see throughout history, this ride may get bumpy. And the further our culture drifts into the chaotic currents of secular postmodernism, the harder we have to swim and the less we'll, we'll feel at home. 
The other option is, is that we just go with the flow. And I predict this, and it's, it's not a prophecy, just an observation, that as a church in this society, I think the waters are going to get choppier ahead. Culturally, the wrecking ball has already started to demolish some of those things that we assume were terra firma. Solid ground. And I think for us now, these words of Jesus seem to take on fresh significance in the midst of many uncertainties. So what do we do with all this? What's the sort of application? I just want to kind of conclude just by finishing with a, a few words of Jesus. That spoke to the disciples and speaks to us today who profess his name. And it's simply this. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You know, it's clear from the passage that standing firm is going to be costly. I said the other option is, is to actually buckle under the pressure, buckle under the weight to, to kind of try our best to blend in, to, to, to compromise, to make accommodations. Or to put it another way, to actually kind of filter God's word through the lens of culture instead of filtering our culture through the lens of God's word. I think whichever way we look at it, to stand firm as Jesus exhorts his followers to do is not going to be easy. But the question remains for each of us, both individuals and as a church, will we? Stand firm. Jesus wouldn't have said this if there wasn't a question hanging over. Will we stand firm? Over a few years back, I did kind of a reasonable amount of study looking at the whole area of, of, of discipleship, sacrifice, and suffering in the context of Christian discipleship and, and asking the question, is it still a central idea to take up your cross and, and, and follow him? And I came to the conclusion that it'd be shifted and shuffled along to the sidelines, whereas the gospel clearly states that this is sense and peace. And uh, one, of the, one of the people I, I, I read was a guy called uh, David Wells, a, a reformed theologian. Some have described him as the kind of the, the miserable theologian of evangelicalism, but uh, being a glass half empty person, it kind of resonated with me. <laughs> and he, he, he said this, 
just a, just a paraphrase, really. He said, in our secular, in our secular postmodern culture, God has become weightless. And he goes on to kind of pose the question, could it be that this cultural trend has also found its way into our churches? The conclusion that I came to by studying, reading fairly broadly, is that the answer is yes. For some reason, God has become weightless. Where we focus so much on our intimate relationship with God, that we've started to neglect his otherness, his transcendence, his holiness. And so we no longer know what it is to fear the Lord. It's an important question, isn't it? Has God become weightless? I think the important thing is, as Christians, is to hold these two things in tension, in, in, in correct tension. We have a relationship with a living Savior, intimacy. And yet, at the same God, at the same time, we come before a God who is holy, transcendent, yeah, I love the words of Psalm 130. It says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? And here it is. But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. I think if the church is going to stand and remain standing as our culture shifts if we experience increased pressure in the West and somehow we've got to rediscover the transcendence of God and who he is. I'm not quite sure what that looks like but I think it's a journey we all have to go on individually as a church in Bilton as a broader church in the UK to rediscover the weightiness of God and here's the thing if our God is a weightless God then why in the world will we take up our cross and follow that kind of saviour. But if our God is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, well, there's an incentive because we serve a holy God. I want to finish just with these kind of words, and I think uh, Eric and I might have quoted them uh, last week. Uh, by a German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And talking of cheap grace, he says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. 
baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say and describe costly grace. He says, costly grace is a treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is a pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake man will pluck out his eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ to which the disciples leave his net. The disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Then he says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is, a, it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. I'm going to close in prayer. And I'm not quite sure whether we have any, another song after this. I'll leave it up, up to you. But I think sometimes it's not a bad thing just to be left hanging and contemplating and just thinking of what discipleship means to each of us. Do we have a cheap grace that we need to repent of? Do we need to regain that sense of awe and wonder of an almighty God who forgives sins? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, when we consider stars that you set in place, all that you have created, when we consider all that Christ has achieved for us upon the cross, and when we bring all these things together, Father, I'm not, sure, I'm not quite sure it flaws us in the way it should, that we would stay with the psalmist, but with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. Father, I pray that you will continue to speak to us in relation to your greatness, your transcendence. Father, we pray you would direct us in the right, on the right path to rediscover what it is to fear you. 
where you and our lives would be. There would be nothing weightier. Where the priorities of our lives would be nothing less than serving you. Where we would dare to take up our cross daily and follow you both in the details and the bigger picture. Father, we can only say forgive us when we have not considered you as we should. And all we can do is just stand silently.